1: com to start winning And away we go episode 181 of the Algaldy podcast it is friday November 5th 2021. The day before, we are to fall forward and turn back our clocks. Yes, this weekend, finally, is the weekend during which we all get an extra hour of sleep or an extra hour to engage in deviant acts. Whichever you prefer. We never judge on this show. But whatever you're up to, late night on Saturday night, have at it because you have an extra hour. Of course, us gaining The hour is kind of wasted, right, on a weekend in which we have no Washington football team game. Then again, maybe this is the perfect weekend to have the clocks turn back. More time to enjoy a weekend without another aggravating loss for the W to the F to the T. Well, hello and welcome to a Football Friday installment of the Al Galdi podcast for a Friday prior to a weekend during which there is no Washington Football team game, but that's okay. I have plenty on the Washington football team for you. As I am back from my one-day, bi week break. Uh, although the day was not really a vacation day, but the also wonderful experience of a colonoscopy is complete. It's an experience not unlike watching a Washington football team game. Anyway, special guest on the show, Washington football team insider Ben Standig of the Athletic DC. We're going to get into a lot of big picture stuff with Washington, including the best route to take regarding getting a franchise quarterback and whether the struggles of this season are a sign that Ron Rivera is not the right man for the job of Washington head coach or are just part of the process of Ron getting this program on track. Ben also will give us intel on the Mitchell Trubisky rumors from NFL trade deadline day this past Tuesday. Next segment, I have some thoughts for you on some recent comments from Ron Rivera on Chase Young and Montez Sweat, who it turns out has a broken jaw. How about this? I was laying on a couch in our basement on Wednesday afternoon while uh, doing the prep. For the oh so wonderful procedure. And I saw the Montez sweat news and I was like, are you kidding me? Okay. Like, what else can go wrong for our team this season? These injuries just refuse to stop. You know, Ron ended up canceling that bi week practice on Wednesday due to all of the injuries. But anyway, what Ron has had to say lately about Chase's and Montez's seasons has been telling. So I want to spend some time on that. With the next segment. I have Goldilocks for you. Picks against the spreads for Maryland, hosting Penn State on Saturday afternoon. Virginia Tech at Boston College on Friday night. And Navy at Notre Dame on Saturday afternoon. A post game, a wild game for the Capitals on Thursday night. A 5 4 overtime loss at the Florida Panthers, who now have an NHL best 19 points on the season. Caps trailed 4 1 in the second period came back, forced overtime, but lost in OT, despite another great game from the great 8, Alex Ovechkin. Also, a very strange night for the Caps when it came to their goaltending, I'll explain. And I actually have quite a bit for you on the Nationals, some observations on their recently announced Major League coaching staff for the 2022 season. And I'll give you my reaction to F.P. Santangelo being out. As the in-game analyst for Masson's telecast of Nats Games, why truly is FP out and who should replace him? Uh, a reminder: if you don't already subscribe to the podcast, please consider doing so. Subscribing costs you nothing and ensures that you never, ever miss an episode of the pod. Uh, you can tweet me at Algaldi. You can email me, the Algaldi Podcast at Yahoo.com. I got a lot of feedback on the procedure. Uh, thank you for that. A tweet from Tony, Lil Galdi out with an elbow, Big Galdi out with a lower body injury. Is Mrs. Galdi part of the old WFT training staff? We have too many show injuries. Yes, Tony, that is true. An excellent point, Tony. As I tweeted back to you, I checked my wife's phone the other day. She has a number of texts from someone named L Hess. Uh, I'm not sure what that's about. But anyway, tweet from D Manley, 72. D Manley 72. Dexter, is that you? Anyway, uh, tweets D manly 72. Good luck on your procedure. I'll be having a root canal. Not sure which is worse. Of course, I feel like I've been having a root canal since May 1999 when it comes to the WFT. Uh, yes, D Manley 72. I think we all feel that way. Tweet from Jesse. Sad there was no podcast on Thursday, but glad you took some time for a little self scout. <laughs> yes, thank you, Jesse. That was a self scout. That was the ultimate self scout. No doubt about that. Uh, as for some emails, uh, email from Kim on the Washington football team writes Kim, after watching the game, talking about the Washington football team's loss at the Denver Broncos last Sunday, I had a nightmare about the self scout speech from Bill Callahan and how far we have not come. Ron better do a self scout and figure. This thing out. Yeah, there's that phrase again, self scout. And yes, Kim, uh, I talked about that on Tuesday's show, episode 179, the traditional bi week self scout, something that Bill Callahan, during his time as Washington interim head coach during the 2019 season, talked about over and over and over and over and over again.
2: Go back into the self scout, uh, coming off the self scout. So as we delve and take a deep dive into the self scout,
1: Yes, Bill. We got it. Uh, Continues, Kim. I'm tired of Ron saying it's on him. Don't make these dumb decisions in the first place. Get a kicker, start Kyle Allen, and pick up Deshaun Jackson, for goodness sake, for the season, and let's score. We may not win, but it will at least be fun to watch. It just isn't that much to ask. Well, interesting, Kim, that you bring up Deshaun Jackson. Uh, Deshaun Jackson went through waivers unclaimed. Uh, We had that news on Thursday. Personally, I would not sign Deshaun Jackson. Washington is a rebuilding team. Deshaun is in his age, 35 season. You know, for all of the people who complained about Washington allowing both Deshaun and Pierre Garçon to leave via free agency after the 2016 season, those were the right calls. You know, Pierre played for the San Francisco 49ers For just two seasons, 2017 and 2018, got injured and has been out of the NFL for years now. And Deshaun now has been on three teams in five seasons since leaving Washington. And if he signs with another team this season, that'll be four teams in five seasons. The problem with Washington allowing Deshaun and Pierre to leave was with how Washington replaced Deshaun and Pierre replaced them with the likes of Josh Doxson and Paul Richardson. That was the problem. The problem was not not giving big money to Deshaun and Pierre. Email from Michael on the Washington football team writes, Michael, I'm a season ticket holder. I've been to all but the Giants game so far this season. I'll tell you what, another losing season, and we are well on our way to one now, will drive me away. No more financial investment in this team. Thank you for the email, Michael. I hear you. I don't blame you. And I am sure that you are not alone. And along those lines, email from Eric of Wheatman, one of the many great sponsors of the Al Galdi podcast. Eric is a big Washington football team fan. He's been going to Washington games since the 1980s, and he has some ideas to improve the fan experience at FedEx Field beyond the obvious ultimate fix, which would be the team, you know, actually being good. But here is a 10-point plan from Eric. Uh, number one, empower lower-level staff and make sure it is good with the little details. Parentheses, see port-a-toilet marketing effort. Uh, without good staff in these areas, the staff is doomed to fail no matter the idea. Number two, have a committee that visits every hockey, baseball, football, and basketball stadium and study what is going on at those stadiums. Steal the best of the ideas and make those ideas your own. Number three, decide on stadium upgrades that improve indoor aesthetics. I know the team is saying to wait for the new stadium but when will that be? There are things the team can do that are not super costly. Attractive garage floor type paint on the floors and columns, Uh, TVs in all bathrooms, larger TVs in the concourse, better sound system. Point number four, improve the food slash drink choices, parentheses, see the Nationals. When I walked into Dallas, they had drink stands of particular manufacturers, no doubt paid for by those companies. Get some food choices that are clever and their own. At RFK, they had the hot rum cocoa drinks, people walking around with trays. They had old school pretzel cooker things that cooked on a tray and made them crunchy. Creativity can bring some cool items that can be profitable. The 24-ounce beer makes no sense, tends to over-serve or get warm before a moderate drinker can finish. Point number five, lower the prices for some food items. Not everything, but some signature things. Hot dogs and Cokes should be cheap. Point number six, once at a Dallas game at RFK, the team gave out mini cone horns. It was so loud, they did not do it again. Parentheses, what a game. Uh, the team should give away these only to people wearing our team's colors. Come up with giveaways that reward the local fan. Point number seven, promote the upper deck. Create sections in the upper deck, a family section, a non-family hog pit section, a corporate area. Point number eight, create one or more container towns like the bullpen for Nationals games, giant screen televisions, etc., other parking lot initiatives that enhance the tailgate experience. How about a couple of field goal kicking stations with prizes? I tell you what, Eric, uh, maybe Washington could use those field goal kicking stations to find itself a kicker. Uh, point number nine, replay the big plays from the game. If we have an awesome touchdown, show it again later. Show more of the greatest plays in our history. Have these playing on certain large televisions in the concourse. And point number 10, management should record fans enjoying themselves at games and use those recordings in the team's marketing. What the team should not do is review these ideas and say the shake is not worth it. The squeeze. It will not improve the bottom line in a measurable way, and it will be a lot of work. This is feeding off the NFL's brand thinking. This is about creating a fan base that sees value, tradition, and fun at the ballpark on a Sunday. Thank you for the email, Eric. I thought that those were excellent ideas. You know, Eric is a businessman, and like I said, he's been going to Washington football games since the 1980s, so he knows of what he speaks. Now, I have very little faith that any of these ideas will actually be implemented. But of course, that's not the point. If only we could take legal action to have these ideas implemented at FedEx Field. Sadly, we cannot do that. But if you have been wronged, always know that the law firm of Paulson and Nace is there for you. Paulson and Nace will stand up for you. If you have a case, contact Paulson and Nace. Paulson and Nace Handles complex personal injury, medical negligence, and wrongful death cases. The services of Paulson and Ace are available in DC, Maryland. And West Virginia. Paulson and Nace is a family law firm. The Naces are DMV through and through, big Washington football team fans. Paulson and Nace has decades of experience trying cases to jury verdicts and fighting for those injured through no fault of their own. Barry Nace and Chris Nace are both past presidents of the DC trial lawyers. Matt Nace is a member of the board of the DC trial lawyers and has just tried two cases in DC. Look, I've known the Naces for 25 plus years. These are good people and smart people who are really good at what they do, Paulson and Nace has recovered millions of dollars for the sick and injured. It's very simple. If you have a case, contact Paulson and Nace. If you feel as if you've been wronged, if you have a complex personal injury, medical negligence, or wrongful death case, or you think that you may have one but aren't sure, call Paulson and Nace and schedule a no-obligation appointment. Yeah, you're obligated to nothing. You can call Paulson and Nace at 202-902-7611. That's 202-902-7611. When you call, make sure that you tell Paulson and Nace that Al Galdi sent you. Schedule a no-obligation appointment by calling 202-902-7611. Paulson and Nace, when tragedy happens, let their family take care of yours. Well, before we get to our special guest, Washington football team insider Ben Standig of the Athletic D.C., I do want to discuss some items regarding Washington's defense, particularly Washington's top two edge rushers. So first of all, how about this Montez Sweat news? A piece by Michael Silver on the Washington football team's official website, WashingtonFootball.com, on Thursday confirmed multiple reports from Wednesday that said that Montez, in the loss at the Denver Broncos last Sunday, suffered a non-displaced fracture of his jaw. He is expected to miss four to six weeks. Now, the injury is not expected to require surgery, but the injury is expected to require no hard physical contact and an altered diet. So not only is Washington 2-6, and six, not only has Washington lost four consecutive games, not only does Washington have a minus 71-point differential? Not only will Washington, after its bye week, be playing the reigning defending Super Bowl champion Tampa Bay Buccaneers at FedEx Field, not only is Washington's offense ravaged by injury, but now Washington is set to be without one of the team's top two edge rushers for at least a month. And what was as telling as anything to me about the news of the Montez Sweat injury was that the reaction of a lot of fans wasn't, geez, that's bad. Washington is losing one of its best players. No, the reaction of a lot of Washington fans was some version of the joke, well, there goes the combined sack record. And I think that that was a principal reaction for Washington fans, tells you everything about this Washington defense this season. Of course, you'll recall Montez Sweat at his post-training camp practice press conference on August 10th saying that he wanted himself and Chase Young to break the record for most combined sacks in a season by two teammates in Washington or even NFL history. Quote, I personally want to go get the combined sack record that the guys got back before us, end quote. Here you go.
3: We talk about all the time about breaking records and stuff like that. I personally want to go get the, the combined sack record that the, uh, the guys got back before So yeah, we talk about it all the time.
1: Yeah. Well, the record for most combined sacks by two Washington teammates in an NFL regular season is Dexter Manley and Charles Mann combining for 29 and a half sacks for the 1985 Redskins. The official NFL record for most combined sacks by two teammates in an NFL regular season is Chris Dolman and Keith Millard combining for 39 sacks for the 1989 Minnesota Vikings, although pro football reference has Joe Klecko and Mark Gastineau as having combined for 40 and a half sacks for the 1981 New York Jets. Whichever record Montez Sweat was talking about back on August 10th, uh pick your poison, okay? Because Chase Young and Montez Sweat this season have combined for five and a half sacks.
3: We talk about it all the time about breaking records and stuff like that. I personally want to go get the Kaban the sack record that the uh, the guys got back before us. So, yeah, we talk about it all the time.
1: Yes, Montez. Thank you. We got you. Now, I mentioned a piece by Michael Silver on WashingtonFootball.com on Thursday. As you may know, Michael Silver and Ron Rivera are pals. They both went to Cal. They've known each other for years. This is why Silver, who has been an NFL reporter and writer for years, took this job working for the Washington football team. Although Silver still does do some NFL reporting, which I find is at least somewhat of a conflict of interest. But anyway, uh, also in this piece by Silver is Ron telling Silver that Ron wants more from Chase Young and Montez Sweat. Said Ron, quote, we would like to see a little more from those guys. They need to stop pressing and trust their teammates. Sometimes when a guy tries to chip them, instead of running through the chip and blowing that guy up, you'll see them duck underneath or slip around and miss a chance to make a play. Sometimes Chase starts outside and plants his leg and cuts inside because he's trying to make a play. And the quarterbacks get flushed to the outside. If Chase stays outside, he has an easy sack but instead he dives underneath, end quote. So right there, you had Ron Rivera clearly saying that the team needs more from Chase Young and Montez Sweat. Ron has been asked about Chase and Montez, especially Chase, quite a bit this season, with each guy having a so-so season. And I do want to emphasize that. It's not that each guy has been awful this season because that's not the case and that's not fair. But each guy, especially Chase, has been kind of like so-so this season. Like Each guy has had his moments, but neither guy has overwhelmed you this season. Okay, And that's not just looking at traditional stats like sacks and forced fumbles. That's also looking at some of the advanced stats that are out there. Now, Ron, through all of this, had largely defended Chase and Montez. But right there in what Ron Rivera said to Michael Silver, you didn't really get Ron defending Chase and Montez. Now, Ron didn't trash Chase and Montez. But Ron said, quote, we would like to see a little bit more from those guys. They need to stop pressing and trust their teammates, end quote. And as Ron goes on in that quote, You have Ron pretty much saying that Chase has been guilty of not adhering to the defensive scheme, confirming what I and others have suspected all along. That when Ron has talked about players not playing the defensive scheme, Chase Young has been one of the players who Ron Rivera has been talking about. Now, you also heard in that quote from Ron, him bringing up shipping. Uh, this has become a popular topic this season. This issue of teams chipping Chase Young and Montez Sweat. This issue has been discussed many times by Ron Rivera this season. Well, we also recently have had this. Ron, in a conversation with Washington football team insider J.P. Finley of NBC Sports Washington in an installment of the Washington Football Talk podcast that came out on Wednesday, saying two things of note. Here's the first.
2: There are some things that that <clears throat> that I, I, you know people don't really take into account as to some of our struggles on, on defense. And, and I had this you know analytically looked at. Um, in third downs, we face more chips and and extra blockers than any other team right now. The league average, I think, is somewhere around thirty percent of the time, and we're at fifty-seven percent of the time on third and seven to ten. Um, specifically at that distance, we're getting 57% of the snaps. There's some sort of chip, double chip, extra blocker working his way out into the route to slow down our pass rush. Um, so there is something there that, that people are trying to stop and prevent. And yet, recently you're starting to see a start to trend getting a little bit better. Obviously, especially the last two weeks, we've held. Uh, you know, we, we held Denver below their average. And we were able to hold Green Bay below their average with Aaron Rodgers. Now, again, we didn't beat them, but, you know, that's something that we can build off of.
1: Okay, so Ron right there said that Washington, per research from somewhere, uh, Ron said, quote, I had this analytically looked at, end quote, okay, Uh, on third and sevens through third and tens is getting chipped in some form or fashion on 57% of defensive snaps with the league average being around 30 percent. All right. Okay. So what? (laughs) All right. I don't get this fixation that Ron has with telling us how often Chase and Montez have been chipped this season. You know, chipping players isn't some revolutionary concept. This has been going on in the NFL for a while. Many great edge rushers get chipped and get double teamed. It's your job as an edge rusher to overcome being chipped and double teamed. It's your job as a defense to overcome your edge rusher or edge rushers getting chipped and double teamed. And if your team has an edge rusher who is consistently getting chipped and double teamed, then that should be leaving other guys on the defense to make plays. And that hasn't been happening for Washington's defense this season. As you may know, Washington's defense has not been good this season. Washington, through Week 8, was 29th out of 32 teams in the NFL in total defense for Football Outsiders DVOA metric. This whole thing about Chase Young and Montez Sweat being chipped more and more is coming off like excuse-making. And I appreciate the stat that Ron dropped on us. You know me. I love a good stat. Uh, I'm not sure where Ron got that from, but I'll trust what he's saying. I have no reason not to. You know, Washington does have a relationship with pro football focus. Maybe that's a PFF stat. But, you know, this idea of Washington on 3rd and 7s through 3rd and 10s this season getting chipped in some form or fashion on 57% of defensive snaps with the league average being around 30%. That's interesting. That's notable. That's actually good information. But again... So what? Now what? Like, okay, do you want me to play a violin for you? Overcome being chipped. That's what good players and good defenses do. Also from Ron with JP, was Ron being asked to give his evaluation of Chase Young and Montez Sweat this season?
2: They've, they've had a hard time of it because they've been the targets of those, those right. third and seven to 10, those chips, those extra blockers. I um, mean they're facing them at other downs, too, as well. Uh, we've seen a few more play actions than, than I think, than normal. Um, but they're still capable, and they've shown that they're capable. We have to get more. We've got to be better. And uh, the guys around them have to be better as well.
1: All right. So says Ron Rivera of Chase Young and Montez Sweat there, quote, they've had a hard time of it because they've been the targets of those chips, those extra blockers. We've seen a few more play actions than normal, but they're still capable and they've shown that they're capable. We have to get more. We've got to be better. And the guys around them have to be better as well, End quote. So, again, you get more excuse making from Ron. He brings up the chips. He brings up play action plays. I mean, geez, play action plays? Really? Play action is all over the NFL right now. For those of you who don't know, analytics have revealed play-action passing is far more effective than non-play-action passing. So pretty much every offense against every defense is making heavy usage of play-action passing these days. Like The fact that Washington has seen more play-action plays doesn't mean anything to me, doesn't move me in any way. So you do get more excuse-making there from Ron. But you also get Ron, again, kind of, sort of calling out Chase Young and Montez Sweat, saying, quote, they've had a hard time of it, And quote. I don't know that we had heard Ron previously this season flat out acknowledge that Chase Young and Montez Sweat have not been great so far this year, you know, have had problems, have been underwhelming to at least some degrees so far this season. Again, it's not that each guy has been awful. I want to be clear about that. But neither guy has been great. Neither guy has blown you away. Certainly, neither guy has been what we hoped he would be so far this year. And so, as we move forward with this Washington football team season, and I know where a lot of you are, you're basically like, I don't care anymore. It's all about getting a franchise quarterback this offseason. I hear you on that. But let me tell you, there's something else that really matters with Washington right now. And that is what is the deal with this defense and what needs to happen with this defense? moving forward. This is one of the things I'm going to get into next segment in my conversation with Washington football team insider Ben Standing of the Athletic DC. Put aside the screaming need for Washington to get a franchise quarterback this offseason. Does Washington also have to overhaul or at the very least drastically revamp the defense this offseason? Okay? Because the defense has been so bad to where you got to question everything right now with this defense. So why Chase Young and Montez Sweat? Or having these underwhelming seasons, especially Chase, because it is kind of more Chase than Montez. uh, That matters. That matters a lot. What is the why behind all of this? Are there internal problems with this defense? I've raised this before. I still wonder about this defense because it has never made sense to me that this defense with this talent, this coaching, and up until recently, this health has been this bad. Now, maybe there are no internal problems with Washington's defense, okay? It may be that everyone is getting along swimmingly. But you got to wonder, and you got to ask these questions. Few things have been as frustrating with this defense as the underwhelming seasons that Chase Young and Montez Sweat are having. Each guy is too gifted, too talented to be underwhelming. And it matters why each guy has had an underwhelming season so far this year. Well, what also matters is the health of your skin. And if you have questions or concerns regarding your skin, always know that Dr. George Verghese in the Mid Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland are there for you. Dr. Verghese is a board certified dermatologist and Mohs surgeon. He is one of the nation's premier dermatologists. He's a big Washington football team fan and listener of this podcast and operating under his direction is the Mid Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland. The Institute focuses on medical skin care, cosmetic procedures, and skin cancer diagnosis and comprehensive care. And specific to skin cancer treatment, the Mid Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland offers something very special and cutting edge superficial radiation therapy, or SRT. SRT is an alternative to surgical procedures for basal cell and squamous cell skin cancers. SRT is something else, it's a non surgical skin cancer treatment. That's safe and effective. You see, having skin cancer doesn't mean having to have surgery and the downtime and side effects that go with surgery. You have options. Understand that a non-surgical option in SRT is available. Dr. George Verghese and the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland offer SRT, unlike many other dermatology practices in the area, and SRT is covered by most insurances. To find out more, call 301 396 3401 Make sure you tell them that Al Galdy sent you. That phone number again, 301-396-3401 or visit MidAtlanticSkin.com. That's MidAtlanticSkin.com. Dr. George Verghese in the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland, nationally recognized for treating skin cancer across the Mid-Atlantic region. All right, well, time now for our special guest. He is perhaps the best asker of questions at Ron Rivera press conferences. You know we appreciate that. He is Ben Standing, Washington football team insider and senior writer for The Athletic DC, the host of the Standing Room Only podcast. Ben, it's great to have you back on, man. How are you? I'm good. I don't
4: know if I get that title. I'm a big I, I really do pay attention to the questions that people ask I think it's important I think we we don't as the group we don't we don't work together in the sense of like I don't know what anybody's gonna ask necessarily and vice versa but I do think there's like um you know we, we do have to have some chemistry there it's like we have to have coordinated rushes like the way Ron Rivera talked. you can't just all we can't just all ask seven questions about this thing and then we leave the right side open and we didn't get to Something else, but some people ask some good questions. Like mean, Matt, Matt Paris is pretty good. I'm, I'm, I have my moments, but you know. Yeah, I was going to say, you're not uh,
1: deviating from the scheme. You're in adherence with the Jack Do Rio coordinated scheme when it comes to asking questions. So that's good. Washington uh, could certainly use more of that. Well, speaking of Washington's pass rush, you and others reported on Wednesday of Montez Sweat now being out for four to six weeks due to having this fractured jaw that was suffered in the loss of the Denver Broncos on Sunday. It's amazing. I mean, it's one bad thing after another right now with this team let's just get to this cuz i want to do a lot of bigger picture stuff with you but is there any realistic path by which washington does well in the post bye week portion of the season as washington did last season or, or are we just on our one-way street right now to say 5 and 12 or worse for this season well i
4: think mean, it's i think mean, it's two things i think there's a world in which they could get on a decent run. I mean, right, first off, once you get past Tampa Bay, the schedule gets a lot easier. There are the two games against Dallas, and obviously they look formidable. But, you know, other than that, Carolina looks, you know, certainly looks beatable. Seattle, especially if Russell Wilson's still out, that's the case. Three games against the Eagles and the Giants, you know, they're obviously uh, towards the bottom. The Raiders have looked pretty good. So, you know, there's some winnable games there, and if and Ron Rivera teams historically do pretty, pretty well in the second half of the year. However, my point would be, to what end? Like I was talking about somebody the other, somebody the other day. Like the, Washington has not won more than what ten games in the Dan Snyder era, and even in the years in which they maybe won ten, there wasn't even one time in which you went into every game thinking this team could win. Like there hasn't, like they haven't even had those kind of teams. They're always like these these second half surges. We're like, wait, is this real? What's happening? And that's how it, I think it would kind of feel here. I guess if the defense like really went nuts. Maybe we'd feel different, but in general, like to me, what's the point? And this is like the bigger picture. It's like that—that's why to me it is only about their bigger picture until so they solve the quarterback situation, and then you obviously we have all the ownership stuff, which is a whole separate issue that you know none of us can can even really contemplate too much on what how that's going to get fixed. But a lot of this feels small minded um, when we just sort of talk about—not saying you, but I just mean like in general, like the the, the third down defense or or whatever, like. Yeah, they could win some more games, but like, at what point is this thing going to become sustainable? I don't think, my sense, is we're not going to get that answer this year. And to me, that's kind of all that matters at this point.
1: Yeah, I'm with you on that. And you mentioned quarterback, and I think pretty much everyone agrees at this point that Washington needs to go all in on trying to get a franchise quarterback this offseason. Are you like me and thinking it's really all about the draft, that this stuff about trading for an established franchise veteran quarterback or you know signing some other veteran quarterback – that that's not going to do anything for you at this point, that it needs to be all about taking a quarterback in the first round of the 2022 NFL draft.
4: Interesting. So I like it when Al and I agree, which is most of the time because Al's a smart guy and I try to keep up. But in this case, I'm going to disagree slightly. I mean, look, the obvious path is the draft. And, you know, I, I just had on our uh, draft insider, uh, Dane Brugler on my podcast. And, you know, he was, he's, he's among the many saying this is not the world's best draft class, which is to say, there will surely be some players that come out of it that are good, but it's just at the top right now. It's just hard to project anybody that you're definitively feeling great about with a top five pick or or whatever. So, the draft is the the most is the easiest way to go right now. Washington has a pick in the top ten. You can just make that call, right? I mean, if they had been picking ten or eleven last year, maybe they would have just taken Justin Fields or Mac Jones, but they were picking nineteen, so they didn't. So the the easiest path is the draft, and that's also. You know, it gives you a cheaper player for the first four or five years. You can develop that player and so on. However, unless things there's a big turnaround this year, they're going to have two losing seasons in a row under Ron Rivera. If you draft a rookie, even the ones who do really well, like Justin Herbert last year, still probably leads to another losing season, just being realistic, if that player is going to play the most. And then you have to hope that by the fourth year, that player is, you know, that, that little the little boy is ready to be, be turned turn, turn into a grown up and you feel good about them going in, into the situation. I don't know. Just, I, I'm not saying of Air is under any pressure, but at the same point, at some point, you got to look and see, well, how are we supposed to get this thing going? And, you know, things are about to start, start getting a little bit pricier, right? They paid John Allen this year, next offseason. Uh, Montez Sweat, Terry McLaurin, Daron Payne are all guys who either need to get extensions in the case of Payne going into a a fifth year or or Who are contract eligible you start getting to pay these guys more You know that becomes problematic. I I do I kind of feel like if they don't turn this around this year in a real way And I don't think that's even conceivable like I said before because of the quarterback situations I kind of feel like there may be some pressure on Ron Rivera to get a veteran now the problem is well great go get You know I love it when people say, well, why don't go get a quarterback as if it was that easy? You know, it's not like CVS when I'm when I'm have a hankering for chips at two in the morning. I just go to the CVS or Seven They're sitting right there. You can't just do that. So I don't know what how they do that. But I, I kind of feel like they're this, you know, th- there may be some feeling of we've got to get somebody now to come in here. And I don't think that's the rookie. So I'm kind of feeling it's a vet without saying, though, I have no idea how that what the path is right now.
1: Yeah, and I mean to me that's a thing. Like Aaron Rodgers, presumably, isn't gonna to wanna to come here. Russell Wilson, presumably, isn't gonna to wanna to come here. Deshaun Watson probably not gonna to wanna to come here, and it's debatable whether Washington should even want him to come here. Then you're down to the Mitchell Trubisky types, and I mean, okay, you can sign one of those guys, but that's not gonna be your answer as a franchise quarterback. It just feels to me like the draft is got to be the way and you know, that in and of itself presents problems, because like you said, this is not said to be a quarterback where it's drafted. You know, I think about this. Let's say Washington has a top 10 pick, has access to one or more of these, you know, top three quarterbacks in this draft, whoever you think they are, Kenny Pickett, Matt Corral, Desmond Ritter, you know, Malik Willis, whoever. But Washington doesn't like any of those guys. Like, should Washington just force itself to take a quarterback in the first round? Like, we can say you have to get a quarterback this offseason but what if you don't like any of those realistic options available to you? Then what? Do you pass on the quarterback position for a second straight offseason? I think that's part of the challenge of this that like you said, it's not as easy as just go get a franchise quarterback this offseason.
4: Yeah, it's it's incredibly not easy. It, it I think I'm going through an existential crisis lately. I I think I think the way I think we're in the mood in the mode. I'm saying collectively, the people who talk about this team and think about this team, are, I think, are losing their mind a little bit. We are so focused on the small minded stuff, like how come they can't score in the red zone, while ignoring that Taylor Heineke's a backup and they're missing 27 starters, right? Like we're looking at it like there's this is a team that, um, like, as if it, this is the real team out there, and how are they not succeeding? It's like, well, that's not the case. And then when you talk, and then so from that, because now. I've been on the case that Taylor Heineke is not the starter material the whole time. I've never once said he was. I mean, he's done fine. He's done very well, all things considered, for what he is as a backup. But if you view him as the starter and he's underachieving, thus the need for a quarterback you're feeling is even more important, well, you're kind of missing the point. It's been important the whole time. Even if Fitzpatrick was there, they still needed a a guy. So, therefore, my point is people seem to be more saying, well, they got to go get a quarterback. They can't, they they can't, Ron Rivera. Hasn't hasn't tried yet. He needs to stop being patient. He did he tried to get Stafford It didn't work. They made a pretty credible offer from everything. I had heard at the time The Rams situation was just a better one for a variety of reasons that we've all discussed and we don't need to get into And I don't know what their other option would have been I think Fitzpatrick was arguably the next best option so now when people say they got to go get a quarterback. Well, okay. Well, what does that mean? Do you want them to draft a guy? let oh, they, they say they have the eighth pick. you want them drafting a guy at eight no matter what just to feel better? Okay. Well, I mean, teams do that. They, they do that and they end up drafting guys like Christian Ponder or, um, I, you know, name a bunch of other, you know, like Jake Locker or name a bunch of other guys who have been drafted that were obviously not worthy of those spots. I don't have to go outside the franchise. Patrick Ramsey, Jason Campbell, And well, Jason Campbell's okay, but, you know, like, that that happens. So if you try to force the situation, especially in the draft, I think you're going to come up. You, you may put yourself in a tough spot. The, the. But you're right. The vet part, I don't know. The only my only hope on the vet part is, like like last year. At this point, we weren't all saying Stafford's going to be available because I don't think any of us definitively thought that. So who knows what's going to happen? I hear people say Matt Ryan, he's got like a forty million dollar cap hit next year. I'm not smart enough to know how Atlanta. <laughs> how Atlanta uh, eases that but obviously these Rob Rogers type dudes this is what they do and maybe there's a way to get that guy and it would make sense for Atlanta to probably move on from him I would think um but you know who knows I don't know that he's a- a- available H- how about this Jordan Love is going to start again this weekend if Aaron Rodgers decides to stay in Green Bay which I kind of think he might at this point because where is he going to go to win a title if Jordan, let's say Jordan Love plays, looks decent this game, he actually might be somebody you could make a trade for. That's sort of, I'm not saying that solves your answer. He's not a veteran, other than that he's been in the league a little bit. Um, I, so at my point, is like, I don't know who's going to get sprung free over the, or who's going to become interesting over the next half the season. I just think that the rookie thing, you're setting yourself up for potentially a bad, uh, of forcing a move that may not work out. And I just think people, be, because the Taylor Heineke thing is being viewed as He's not good enough to be a starter. Again, something that should have been (laughs) apparent at least to the likelihood for most of this time. Um, It feels like people are just like, well, they got to do something and they're they're starting to panic. And I'm like, eh, no, it's a bigger picture than that. I don't know how you get one. It should have been the thought all along. But the point is they got to get one. And it's not just as simply as saying go get one, though. I know I'm sort of talking in tongues right now, but like, (laughs) it's not easy to say go get one. And when you say get one or I'm going to you know smash the table. All right. Well, good luck with that. Talking with Ben Standig, Washington football
1: team insider and senior writer for the Athletic DC. He is the host of the Standig Room Only podcast. So I know for me, one of the more appalling things about this Washington season has been how bad the defense has been, despite all of the resources that have been put into the defense and despite how, for the most part, the defense has been healthy We talk a lot about quarterback, but do you think that Washington this offseason is also going to have to spend time and resources, if not overhauling the defense, then significantly revamping the defense? Like One of the things that drives me nuts as a fan is, despite all of these first-round picks on the defensive front, despite all of these free agent signings in the secondary, the defense still isn't very good, and Washington this offseason may again have to devote picks and money to trying to beef up this defense, do you think that that's where we may be with this defense this offseason or not necessarily?
4: See, this is why I listened to the Al Goldie podcast and try to have I had I try to have Al on for the football summit I just did on my podcast. Timing just didn't work out. Next time, Uh yeah. Like so, my point is right. So now the last two weeks, the focus has been the red zone offense isn't working either. All these things ignoring the fact that if they had the Ben DiNucci's of the world that this defense beat up on last year, they wouldn't even get the ball to midfield. The argument <laughs> that they can't score, okay, I get it, but like it's in, within reason. If Taylor Heineke had even half the guys who were missing, I bet they would be getting the end zone a little bit more. Anyway, the point, though, is it is still the defense is the problem. Yes, they only gave up 17 points at Denver, a completely, at best, mediocre offense. Aaron Rodgers only scored 24 points, I say in air quotes, Rodgers could have scored forty, I think, if if they had been pressed. But Washington only scored ten. The Chiefs, who looked like an absolute joke of an offense against the Giants, had five hundred yards against Washington uh, just a couple of weeks ago. The defense is the is the issue, and yes, they've they've largely been healthy now. Montez Sweat's out. The William Jackson was out the last couple of games. Um, still, relatively speaking, far healthier than the offense. And to your point of assets. If you look at the starting offense, okay, the last couple of weeks, they only have one player who was essentially who was basically a first or second round pick. That was Eric Flowers. Everybody else is like a third or later, a bunch of seventh round picks, undrafted guys, whatever. The defense, I think it's like seven who are first or second round picks. There's way I mean, not that all those picks are made by Washington. I just mean that at the time that they came into the league, this was how they were viewed. And there's way more on the defensive side that that side should be playing a lot better. If the offense was still doing what it's doing with Taylor Heineke, fine. At least the defense, we could say, well, once they get a quarterback, the sun, will, you know, the sun will come out tomorrow. Ah, Like, I mean, what, what can you really say that this defense is well? So to your point, you know, unless Jamin Davis, for example, has a really strong second half, they probably need to get at least another linebacker. Right. Um, I'll assume William Jackson gets better, but like the safety thing is gonna is still up in the air Bobby McCain even if you think he's good. He's a free agent Landon Collins. I would probably guess is gone Um, Yeah, they and and like I still believe That one of these starting defensive linemen probably doesn't make it through their rookie contract Or at least I would think you'd have to consider trading them um, to maximize the situation because I don't know how you justify re-signing all of them to to uh, market deals um, so, yeah, the defenses to me is the letdown. On all this talk about the red zone struggles, again, yes, it, it, it matters if we're recapping that specific game. But in the bigger picture, when you look at the assets put to both sides of the ball, the injuries, everything else, it's the defense is still the story for me. So, you mentioned trades.
1: You broke the news on Monday that Washington was shopping Landon Collins prior to Tuesday's NFL trade deadline. Washington, of course, ended up not making any trades, but I do think that it matters what Washington was thinking leading up to that trade deadline because it offers a peek into what the organizational thinking is right now. Is your sense that Washington was trying to trade away other players, that Washington was truly trying to be a seller and there was just no market for these players? Or is your sense that Washington was really only trying to trade away Landon?
4: I don't know, to be, to be, to be honest. Uh, one of the points I made um, On my on the 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 podcast I did the other day with this summit scenario was like When it comes to Ron Rivera, like I'm a big believer when it comes to like the the games themselves are results-oriented but in terms of Trades or free agents or you know roster building Intent to me is as important if not more important than results projecting how other human beings will perform obviously not really not an easy thing to do, right? You can have all the scouting reports in the world and still get Ryan Leaf, you know, or Jamarcus Russell or whatever, right? These, these things, or, you know, even RG3, whatever. These things will happen. Um, and same thing with trades and, you know, who knows. But what's the intent? Like, when you go to make a move, I mean, just to use a Wizards analogy, um, when they signed – everybody makes fun of Jan Mahimi. was a terrible contract, and it was. But it, it made literally no sense because they already had a, a Marching Gortat, and you literally couldn't play two – true centers together. So the intent of the move never made sense for one second, right? So I look to figure out what is Ron Rivera's intent. What are the moves that they're making and what do they what do they tell me? I think for the most part, most of the moves make sense on paper historically. But in terms of right now, now that they're up against it a bit, they're at this trade deadline, I don't I, I don't know what they're what they're what they were doing. Were they thinking to themselves, let's be realistic, we're not going anywhere this year. Who can we trade? get anything back in return um by the way i think you, you can't just trade anybody for a seventh round pick i know seventh round picks are deemed to be irrelevant they're they're the kind of i mean cam curls a seventh round pick jimmy moreland james smith williams these guys are on your roster for three and four years at cheap value teams don't just willingly trade them for eight games of somebody unless it's like a you know, really good player um i, I that's why i think though i don't quite know where they're at there are times around reverses we're not gonna trade away a bunch of draft picks to just to you know put ourselves in a bad spot, we want to keep building. But he was willing to trade a first and a third for Stafford. I'm not saying that you can't think both things, but that's a, it's like he says. Sorry, he, I don't know always where, where he's at. Is he actually going for it immediately, or is he trying? You know, like even keeping Brandon Scherf last year is kind of saying we're kind of going for it. You didn't have to pay a guard eighteen million dollars. On the other hand, they have a roster filled with a bunch of young guys. He keeps talking about. It's going to take a minute to get these guys going, which is reasonable. So uh, to your point of like, what were they trying to do? I honestly don't know both in terms of the sourcing. I didn't hear too much else besides Landon Collins or at least nothing else. I'd feel comfortable saying like, you know, that, that it was more than district a rumor. But um, on the other hand, I, I don't, I don't know it, what they think. I, I, he may still think we rallied last year to make the playoffs. Why not this year? I, I don't know. It's, it's, it's weird. I didn't get the sense that they were trying to get anybody at least. I'll say that much. So, um, you know, I just think landing Collins is a unique circumstance. Um, and, um, yeah, I think they're just trying to kind of see what, what could be out there. Yeah, the NFL is interesting because you can have your
1: cake and eat it too. Like, you can contend while rebuilding. You can win while rebuilding. The season is so short. It's not like MLB or the NBA or the NHL where it's like you got to make your decision. Are you in or are you out? But once a season is underway – And, you know, you're two and six and your point differential is minus 71 as Washington's is. It's like, okay, you're out on this season because you're not in a bad division. Like you have to recognize kind of, okay, it's not happening for us this season, barring some miracle run. So I, I just hope that they were trying to sell. I recognize, though, that it's unlikely that many, if any, of the players on the roster had true trade value in terms of those guys who you wanted to trade. Now, I know you tweeted about some of this on Thursday The Mitchell Trubisky stuff that was out there on Tuesday, what do you believe was true about this uh, supposed Washington interest in trading for Buffalo Bills quarterback, Mitchell Trubisky?
4: Um, I don't believe any of it. I mean, from the Bills' perspective, I get it. Mitch Trubisky's a punching bag. He's their backup quarterback. You know, he's a a contending team is not trading their backup quarterback. I mean, I guess if you you offered a first-round pick, I guess anything's possible. But Mitch Trubisky... The guy who they have to back up Josh Allen is very valuable for them, regardless of what you think he is or isn't. By the way, for as much of a joke as he's viewed, he was in the playoffs last year as the starting quarterback for the Bears. So, you know, I mean, he was doing at least enough for that. Um, whether Washington has interest in him, I don't know. They could have signed him for nothing this offseason and said, here, you're the starter, more or less. They so didn't do that. Uh, instead, of giving $10 million to Ryan Fitzpatrick, which obviously seems like the reasonable move. It's just, I'm my stance last off season was if you can draft a quarterback, right? Having a guy like a Trubisky actually is kind of an interesting way to go because there is some potential based on the fact of he was the second, you know, the, the second pick in the draft just a couple a few years ago. And you know, there's, it wasn't like, I mean, whether you question whether he should have been the second pick or not, he was a guy that a lot of people thought was a reasonable need to be picked somewhere in the first round. Um, so, like, you know, him or, like, a Mariota, like, a, 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 a guy with a puncher's chance of being pretty decent, but, you know, like sort of the way the Ryan Tannehill experiment went with Tennessee, but it's probably not going to be a big cost. But they didn't do that, so I don't know, you know, it, it, it wouldn't make that much sense to me, to your point earlier. If they go in the next offseason and end up going that route, again, while understanding a guy like that, you know, who knows, maybe he improves. That doesn't seem to be overly inspiring considering where they're at right now I mean you know so I I don't buy that there was much to it it doesn't mean they couldn't be somewhat interested again because of potential but I no way Buffalo's trading them and I don't I, I don't get what Mitch Trubisky, I mean, plus it's a it's a one-year deal right I mean I don't what what, what what would make you think he's gonna turn your season around if that's what it's doing That doesn't I don't I don't that, that, that nothing really makes sense to me right now
1: yeah. I mean, I guess the only thing would have been, so Washington did have that reported interest in Trubisky in the offseason. Maybe you trade for him, you give him a nine game audition for you as your starter this year and see what happens. But then to your point, you still have to re-sign him after this year. So there were certainly more than a few things about the Trubisky stuff that didn't quite add up. All right. Taking a step back and just looking at things through purely a football prism that Washington has been as bad as it has been so far this season. Do you take that as more of the season just being a part of the necessary growing pains of a difficult process and, you know, we just don't need to suck it up and understand this isn't easy and this is going to be hard? Or do you take the struggles as more of a sign that Ron Rivera isn't getting the job done and may not be the man for the job. I know as a fan of the team, this is what I'm kind of wrestling with right now. Like, what's the proper way to digest what's happening here this season? Is this just a part of some necessary difficulties, or is this like a flashing neon sign of, hey, Ron ain't the guy to turn this thing around?
4: Yeah, I mean, it's tricky, right? Like, as the coach, you know, coach him up, you know, all that stuff. Okay, well, maybe he is saying all the right things, and the players aren't responding which isn't to say that it's that's on him i mean he keeps talking about maturity and discipline so much and at least he certainly did in the beginning of the year i think that was his way of kind of saying some guys are just not getting it and i don't always know if that's on the coach sometimes it is on the player right i mean that's they're responsible for their own actions and habits and so on on the other hand ron Rivera has been a coach for 10 seasons his teams have had losing records in seven of them this is looking like it's going to be eight out of eleven That's not a great track record, even though he does have some high highs, namely a Super Bowl appearance in that 15 and one season. So I think there's reason to be there's reason to be skeptical. I guess I would just say that like they did rally late last year despite having you know limited quarterback play. And you know, I I think they were at least um, you know, I'd like to see what this offense could do if it was healthy and had Fitzpatrick at least at quarterback. The defense, though, was underwhelmed from the jump. They haven't had one game this year where, you know, they looked imposing, right? I mean, the San Diego game, the Chargers got, you know, I, well, they basically converted, like, every third down that they had. I mean, the final score was misleading as to how actually close the game was, and it's just kind of gone from there. And that is Ron Rivera's side of the ball, right? So, you know, again, we can say Chase Young or others maybe need to step up, but, yeah, where does the coaching part of this uh, come in? No doubt. Ben Standing does an awesome job
1: covering the Washington football team. As many of you already know, you can check out his work on the Athletic. Uh, subscribe if you don't already, and certainly give a listen to his podcast. Ben does an awesome job talking Washington football team. The Standing Room Only podcast. Ben, always enjoy it, man. Thanks so much,
4: Al. Any time for you, man. Thanks. All right, good
1: stuff from Ben Standing. Still to come on the show: Goldilocks for college football week ten analysis of a wild Capitals game on Thursday night. And my thoughts on the Nationals New Look coaching staff and on F.P. Santangelo being out as the in-game analyst for Madison's telecast of Nats games. I'll get to all of that starting after this.
0: We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed.
1: All right, let's talk some college football. Goldilocks for week 10 of the college football season. You certainly have heard of Goldilocks and the three bears. This is Goldilocks, my weekly college football picks against the spreads for Maryland, Navy, Virginia Tech, and Virginia, two and two last week. 16 and 14 is the overall record on the season. Now, no game for Virginia this weekend. Wahoo is on its bye. We still don't know exactly what the status of quarterback Brennan Armstrong is. He in that insane 66-49 Cavaliers lost at then number 25 BYU late night last Saturday night, suffered a rib injury in the fourth quarter. By the way, Armstrong on Monday was included as one of 15 semifinalists for the Maxwell Award for collegiate player of the year. So here we go. Goldilocks for week 10. All odds are from Caesar Sportsbook as of very early Friday morning. Goldilocks game number one, Maryland home to Penn State Saturday afternoon at 3.30. The Terrapins are plus 10 and the Terps are coming off a win. Uh, They improved a 5-3, 38-35 victory over Indiana at Capital One Field at Maryland Stadium in College Park last Saturday afternoon. This was a big win for the Terps. The win snapped a three-game losing streak for Maryland off its 4-0 start to the season. The Terps had been terrible during that three-game losing streak. The win was key to the Terps getting to six wins this season. And this game was the Terps' homecoming game. A loss in this game and to a team in IU that came into the game just 2-5 and five this season. It would not have been a good look for Maryland head coach, Mike Loxley. Now, all of that said, this was not some pretty win for the Terps. The Terps blew a 14-0 first quarter lead, and the game was in doubt until basically its end. The Terps allowed Indiana true freshman quarterback Donovan McCulley to throw for 242 yards and two touchdowns versus no interceptions on just 25 pass attempts. That's 9.68 yards per pass attempt. Uh, The Terps allowed Indiana running back and USC graduate transfer Stephen Carr to have 21 carries for 136 yards. That's 6.48 yards per carry and two touchdowns. And Maryland's running game wasn't particularly good. However, the Terps did get a big game From their starting quarterback, Talia Tungavailoa. He had struggled during the three-game losing streak. He was good last Saturday afternoon. And against an Indiana team that had not been that bad defensively, Talia 26 of 40 for 419 yards, two touchdowns, and no interceptions. He took just two sacks and he quarterbacked a Maryland offense that went seven of fifteen. On third downs, Talia became the first Maryland quarterback to throw for at least 400 yards in a game since Danny O'Brien threw for 417 in a 38-31 win over NC State in College Park. November 27th, 2010. Yeah, it had been nearly 11 full years since a Maryland quarterback had thrown for at least 400 yards in a game. Now you look at Penn State, it has lost three consecutive games since a 5 and do no start, although the three losses are the following. A 23-20 loss at then number 3 Iowa on October 9th. A 2018 loss in nine overtimes at home to Illinois on October 23rd. And a 33-24 loss at then number 5 Ohio State last Saturday. So Penn State's three-game losing streak very different than Maryland's three-game losing streak that ended with the win over Indiana in College Park. Last Saturday afternoon, Penn State is not great offensively, but is excellent defensively. The Nittany Lions through week nine were number eight in the FBS in defensive efficiency per ESPN. The Nittany Lions through week nine were number six in the FBS in lowest opponent's yards per pass attempt at 5.64. It's nice that Maryland beat IU, but that was not some supremely impressive win. And if you're a Terps fan, you know that there ain't no program that has owned the Terps quite like Penn State. Maryland all-time is an incredible 3-40-1 against Penn State. Yeah, 3-40-1, and Penn State is coming to College Park with revenge on the mind because it was last season, November 7th, 2020, that the Terps improved to 2-1 and with a 35-19 win at Penn State, what was really one of the more stunning dominant wins in Maryland football history? The Terrapins authored a 16 point victory, and the game was nowhere near that close. The score was 35 7 in the fourth quarter as 27 and a half point underdogs at Penn State. That was a shocker that Maryland win at Penn State last November. Uh, there's actually an indication of some sharp money on the Terps for this game because the public is pounding Penn State, and yet the line for the game has gone toward fewer points being given to the Terps. We call that, my friends, reverse line movement. Uh, I'm going to go against that principle here, though, because I just don't like a lot of what we're seeing from Maryland right now. Shame on me if going against my methodology does not work, but give me Penn State minus 10. Make money, money, make money, money, money. Thank you, Stu. Goldilocks game number two, Virginia Tech at Boston College, Friday night at 7.30. The Hokies are minus three. And yes, Justin Fuente does still have his job as Virginia Tech head coach, although I haven't checked the internet within the last five minutes. Hey, his Hokies are coming off a win, okay? Virginia Tech improved to 4-4, four four, a 26-17 win at Georgia Tech last Saturday afternoon. Hokies snapped a three-game losing streak, won for just the second time in six games since a 2 and do no start to the season, Hokies led at the half 27, entered the fourth quarter with a 23-17 lead, and held on for the win. Now, the Hokies' defense was mixed, but Hokies quarterback Braxton Burmeister had maybe his best game of the season, 15-25 to for 254 yards, two touchdowns, at no interceptions. He took just two sacks. He had 11 carries for 46 yards. And remember, that includes the lost yardage on the two sacks. And Burmeister, quarterback of Virginia Tech offense that went 9 of 18 on third downs. Burmeister has not had a good season, but he was good in this win at Georgia Tech. Also good was Tech's running game for a second consecutive game. Hokies running back Malachi Thomas, 25 carries for 103 yards. Hokies running back Raheem Blackshear, 14 carries for 83 yards. Boston College is more than beatable. The Eagles are 4 and 4, including 0 and 4 in the ACC. They have lost four straight. BC is coming off a 21 6 loss at Syracuse last Saturday. BC just isn't good. Now, neither is Tech, but the Hokies should win this game. Will they? Who the heck knows? I mean, to me, you cannot trust this Virginia Tech team. Remember, it lost to Syracuse in Blacksburg. Just a few weeks ago, a 41 loss on October 23rd. That said, give me Virginia Tech minus three.
0: Make money, money, make money,
1: money, money. All right, Snoop and Goldilocks game number three. Navy at number 10, Notre Dame, Saturday afternoon at 3.30. The midshipmen are plus 21. Uh, when I say, by the way, number 10, Notre Dame, That is now in reference, not to the associated press poll, but to the college football playoff rankings, the first installment of which came out on Tuesday night. Your top four teams, Georgia, Alabama, Michigan State, and Oregon. And number 10 is the Fighting Irish of Notre Dame. Navy won last week and proved a two and six, a 2017 win at Tulsa last Friday night. The game was tied at three at the half as neither team. Did much offensively, but the Mids offense came alive in the second half and their triple option rushing attack ended up having easily its best game of the season so far. The Mids had 302 total net rushing yards and two touchdowns on 60 carries, 5.03 Yards per carry. The Mids had zero net passing yards in the game. Every yardage of offense for Navy in the game was a rushing yard. Uh, Navy's defense was really good too. Navy held Tulsa to just 17 points and just four of eleven on third down. Some big plays by the Navy defense. Navy linebacker Johnny Hodges had a big sack strip for a fumble. That Navy recovered on a first quarter, third and eight for Tulsa at the Navy 20. Uh, Navy safety Rayon Lane, a massive end zone interception in the third quarter. Is he on a second and 10 for Tulsa at the Navy 16 with the game tied at 10? Made a really impressive diving catch of the football off it having been juggled by the intended receiver. But of course, Navy is facing a beast of a different caliber in Notre Dame. Notre Dame is 7 and 1, has won three straights into 24 13 home loss to then number seven Cincinnati on October 2nd. The Irish turn you over. The Irish through week nine were ranked tied for ninth in the FBS with 17 takeaways this season. Notre Dame edge rusher Isaiah Fosky through week nine was tied for third in the FBS with nine sacks this season. Most sacks for a Notre Dame player in a season since Stefan Toid had 12 sacks. During the 2012 season, the Irish have won 38 consecutive games against unranked opponents dating back to the 2016 season. Longest currently active such streak in the FBS. Navy versus Notre Dame. The two schools had played in 93 consecutive seasons. This had been the longest intersectional rivalry in college football. And then came 2020 when the COVID-19 pandemic caused the game to be canceled. Uh, The two schools were originally scheduled to open the 2020 season in Dublin, Ireland, as you may recall. Travel restrictions forced the game to be moved to Annapolis for what would have been the first game in series history to be played at Navy Marine Corps Memorial Stadium, and then the game was ultimately canceled. Thank you, COVID-19. Navy did play then number two Cincinnati Tough a few weeks ago, 27-20 loss in Annapolis on October 23rd, but this game is at Notre Dame. The Fighting Irish are thinking about a spot and the college football playoff. And Navy still has things that worry you if you're a Navy fan, including special teams. The mid-special teams have been really bad this season. You know, Navy in that win at Tulsa gave up a 97-yard kickoff return by Tulsa running back Anthony Watkins for a touchdown to begin the second half. And so give me Notre Dame minus 21.
0: Make money, money, make money, money, money.
1: All right, so Penn State minus 10. Virginia Tech minus three and Notre Dame minus 21. Those are your Goldilocks for college football week 10. Well, we had quite the game for the Capitals on Thursday night. Ultimately, this was a loss for the Caps, but this was a game that resulted in the Caps getting another point. The Caps fell to 5 1 and 4 on the season, a 5 4 overtime loss. At the Florida Panthers, the Panthers improved to an NHL best 9-0-1. Yes, believe it or not, the Florida Panthers are the best team in the NHL so far this season. The Caps overcame a 4-1 second period deficit by scoring the game's final three goals in regulation, but then lost on an even strength goal, just 155 into overtime. Still, the Caps now have gotten at least a point in nine of their 10 games this season. Now the Caps on Thursday night did get back their fourth line center, Nick Dowd. He was back off having missed three of the previous four games due to a lower body injury, but the Caps lost another player, lost Anthony Mantha as he suffered a lower body injury. Camps remained without Nicholas Backstrom. He has yet to play this season due to ongoing rehabilitation on his hip. And the camps remained without TJ Oshie. He missed the third consecutive game due to a lower body injury that was suffered in the 3-2 overtime loss to the Detroit Red Wings at Capital One Arena. On October 27th. So the Caps in this overtime loss at the Panthers on Thursday night did dominate the puck possession battle in the game. Caps per natural stat trick had 51 five on five shot attempts to the Panthers 40, including 14 five on five high danger shot attempts to the Panthers 5. Caps finished with 42 shots on goal to the Panthers 33 and facing. Those 33 Panthers shots on goal was a strange goaltending scenario for the Caps. The Caps goaltending situation on Thursday night was just bizarre. So the Caps announced that Ilya Samsonov would be the team's starting goaltender, but Vitek Vanacek ended up starting the game. Head coach Peter Laviolette then pulled Vanacek just 1:45 into the first period, off like nothing having happened in the game. What was the deal with all of this? Well, here was the Q&A with Caps insider Tarek El-Bashir of the Athletic DC and Lavi-Led during his post-game session with
4: reporters. What happened to Sam Sonoff at the start? Um, You know, Tarek, we're probably just better off saying he had an issue. He (laughs) needed a minute, that's all.
1: So said Laviolette of Samsonov, quote, we're probably just better off saying he had an issue. He needed a minute, end quote. I guess that means that uh, old Ilya had to use the restroom. Okay, Uh, I guess uh, when nature calls, you must answer, nature. And I suppose that's what old Ilya had to do. Well, Samsonov ended up having plenty of time to use the restroom later in the night because he stopped just 15 of the 18 shots on goal that he faced, and he got pulled in the second period in favor of Vanacek. So Vanacek ended up playing a bunch anyway. Samsonov per natural stat trick gave up a goal on a high danger shot on goal, a medium danger shot on goal, and a low danger shot on goal. Vanacek stopped 13 of the 15 shots on goal that he faced. He per natural stat trick gave up a goal on a high danger shot on goal and on a low danger shot on goal. Here was Laviolette during his postgame session with reporters on pulling Samsonov in favor of Vanacek.
3: Uh that was me just making, you know,
4: making a call and not liking the way that the game went. There was just things I thought we could have done better, things that he could have done better, definitely things we could have done better and so I made a change uh, you know in the in the goaltender.
1: Yes you did. So the Caps were down 4-1 in the second period, but they then forged quite the comeback and the comeback was led by who else? The Great Eight. He is great. And he wears number eight. Alex Ovechkin was very good again. He had an even strength goal. He had two assists. He had a game-high six shots on goal. He had a game-high eight shot attempts. He had a game-high tying three takeaways. And Ovechkin, per natural stat trick, finished number three on the Caps in five-on-five shot attempt percentage for the game at 63.3. The Caps on Thursday night with Ovechkin on the ice in five-on-five situations, had 19 shot attempts versus allowing just 11 shot attempts. Good things were happening with Ovi on the ice in five-on-five situations on Thursday night. Ovechkin's goal was an even-strength goal, 18-11 into the second period, to begin that camp's comeback from the 4-1 second period deficit. Ovi scored on a wrister off skating the puck into the left circle to conclude a sequence that he started by getting to a loose puck in the neutral zone. Ovechkin now on the season, 10 goals, number one in the NHL. Alex Ovechkin leading the NHL with 10 goals this season. By the way, all three of Ovechkin's points on Thursday night came on the three goals that accounted for the Caps' comeback from that 4-1 second period deficit. A comeback that was capped by Connor McMichael. Connor McMichael on Thursday night scored his first career NHL regular season goal, an even strength goal, 6-56 into the third period to tie the game at four and complete the Caps' comeback from the 4-1 second period deficit. Great to see this Connor McMichael, very well-regarded prospect. Caps took him with the number 25 pick, In the first round of the 2019 NHL Draft. McMichael on this goal. Scored by just like swiping at a loose puck. In the low slot off Ovechkin. From behind the net. Having just sent the puck toward the net. And then the puck having ricocheted. Into the air. This was another dicey game for the Caps on special teams. Caps went 0 2 on the power play, just 2 3 on the penalty kill. But the Caps battled back from down 4 1 in the second period at what is, again, currently the best team in the NHL, the Florida Panthers. And again, the Caps have recorded at least a point in nine of their 10 games this season. You can't hate that if you're a Caps fan like me. Next up for the Caps, home to the Philadelphia Flyers, Saturday night at 7. All right, let's talk some Nationals. We've actually had a few things going on with the Nats over the last few days, including the Nats on Wednesday announcing their major league coaching staff for the 2022 season. We had been getting bits and pieces of what was going on with the coaching staff, including Kevin Long being out as hitting coach and Darnell Coles being in as hitting coach. And we now know the full staff. And the full staff includes Eric Young Jr. as the new first base coach, Gary DeSarcina, as a new third base coach, and Henry Blanco as the catching and strategy coach, which is a new position. So it was on October 10th that we had multiple reports that longtime Nats coaches Bob Henley and Randy Knorr would not be returning to the Nats Major League coaching staff for the 2022 season, but would be remaining in the organization in player development roles. Uh, Bob Senley Henley, a name familiar to Nats fans. He had been the Nats third base coach in seven of the previous eight seasons. Randy Knorr, another name familiar to Nats fans. He had served in a variety of roles for the Nats, including as first base coach for the 2021 season. We don't know for sure why Henley and Nor are off the Major League coaching staff, but I think the two things... Went on with this. Uh, Number one, each guy is regarded as good at developing players. And given where the Nats are right now in terms of trying to improve their player development, which has been really bad in recent years, you could argue that actually working in player development matters more than working on the major league coaching staff. And number two, the Nats this past season were a horrendous base running team. And you got to think that the team may well have put at least some of that on the first and third base coaches. Just to quantify this, the Nats in the 2021 regular season finished dead last out of 30 major league teams in Fangraph's all-encompassing base running metric BSR at minus 25.4. BSR is base running runs. So the Nats in the 2021 regular season had a major league worst minus 25.4 base running runs. To put that into some context, the next worst total was the New York Yankees and Cincinnati Reds, each at minus 15.1 base running runs. So Nats had a major league worst minus 25.4 base running runs. The Yankees and Reds were tied with the next worst total at minus 15.1. The Nats were more than 10 runs worse than the next worst total in terms of base running runs per fan in the 2021 regular season. Not good. And so now the Nats have Eric Young Jr. as a new first base coach and Gary Sarcina as a new third base coach. Eric Young Jr. is just 36 years old. He has never been a member of a major league coaching staff, but he did spend the 2021 season in the Seattle Mariners organization as a coach for AAA Tacoma. Uh, Eric Young Jr. is the son of former Major Leaguer Eric Young, who is the Atlanta Braves' first base coach and obviously just won a World Series. Also, Eric Young Jr. was a Major League player who led the National League in stolen bases in 2013 with 46. Gary DeSarcina is a very experienced Major League coach. He spent the previous four seasons, 2018 through 2021, with the New York Mets as their bench coach in 2018 and third base coach from 2019 through 2021. DeSarcina was the Boston Red Sox bench coach in 2017. And prior to that, spent three seasons with the Los Angeles Angels as their third base coach in 2014 and 2015 and their first base coach in 2016. Are Eric Young Jr. and Gary DeSarcina substantial upgrades over Randy Knorr and Bob Sendley Henley? Who knows? Uh, Judging major league coaches is hard to do. There's a lot that we don't know, but the Nats were a really bad team this past season, including before the late July sell-off. Like, the idea that the Nats were just bad after the late July sell-off is not true. That's fake news. The Nats were bad before the late July sell-off, hence we had the late July sell-off. So nobody should be surprised that changes have been made to Davey Martinez's staff. Also, the Nats have made Henry Blanco their catching and strategy coach. Uh, That's a new position. So Blanco had been the Nats' bullpen coach for the last four seasons, 2018 through 2021. Prior to that, he worked with Davey Martinez on the Chicago Cubs as their quality assurance coach for three seasons, 2015 through 2017. So the 2022 season is set to be the eighth consecutive season in which Blanco works with Davey. Henry Blanco is very much a Davey Martinez guy. Two things with Blanco getting this new role of catching and strategy coach. Number one, the position of catching coach for the Nats now takes on a particularly important meaning for the 2022 season, with the Nats having these three young catchers in Cape Ruiz, Riley Adams, and Tress Barrera. Like, catching coach has maybe never mattered more for the Nats than catching coach matters right now, given all of the young catchers uh, set to be either playing for the Nats at the major league level this season, or being on the doorstep of playing for the Nats at the major league level this season. Presumably, Ruiz and Adams are your top two catchers to begin the season. Barrera is at AAA Rochester, but you know who knows how these things end up playing out. Number two, Blanco becoming catching and strategy coach, as opposed to bullpen coach, moves him from the bullpen to the dugout where he can assist Davey with in-game strategy. So this, to me, is very much a promotion for Henry Blanco. Also with the Nats over the last few days, F.P. Santangelo is out. Uh, there goes the no-hitter as F.P., likes to say. Uh, We on Wednesday learned that F.P. Santangelo is out as the in-game analyst for Masson's telecast of Nationals games. Uh, F.P. on Wednesday put out a series of classy tweets confirming the news, uh, thanking a number of people, and having nothing but nice things to say about the Nats. There was no bitterness in these tweets from F.P., so I give him credit for that. Uh, now, MOB senior writer Britt Giroli of The Athletic on Wednesday tweeted that she was told that FP being out is more based on performance than the sexual misconduct allegation that prompted FP to miss time during the 2021 season. Uh, I have my doubts about that. It is very difficult for me to think that the sexual misconduct allegation against FP Sant'Angelo had nothing to do with with him being out as the in-game analyst for Masson's telecast of Nats games. Now, I say this recognizing that the FP situation this past season was murky and was ultimately inconclusive. Uh, We, on May 8th, had multiple reports that FP had been accused of sexual misconduct and that that was why he had been on and off as serving as a color commentator for telecasts of Nats games over the previous week. It was very bizarre. FP would be doing a game, then he wouldn't be doing a game, then he was back doing a game. It was strange. An anonymous woman told The Athletic that FP had made, quote, an unwanted advance, end quote, years ago, and she claimed that he sexually assaulted her while she repeatedly told him to stop. The anonymous woman also repeated her claims against FP, in a series of social media posts, leading to the Nats taking him off the air. Now, FP issued a statement to The Athletic denying the accusation. An investigation conducted by Masson, which requested and received help from MLB, was inconclusive. Masson on July 16th put out a statement, quote, the commissioner's office and Masson have reviewed the anonymous claim made against FP Santangelo. MLB and Masson have found no evidence that Mr. Sant'Angelo violated the terms of his contractor agreement, league, or network regulations, nor is there more evidence currently available for us to collect. End quote. And so FP returned to serving as the in-game analyst for Masson's telecast of Nats Games randomly on July 16th, which incredibly was the same day on which the Nats announced that Stalin Castro. Had been placed on administrative leave by Major League Baseball under the joint MLB, M O B P A, domestic violence, sexual assault, and child abuse policy. You can't make this stuff up. The same day on which the Starlin Castro scandal broke, FP Santangelo returned as the in-game analyst for Masson's telecast of Nats Games. Look, who knows whether FP is guilty of anything? Okay. I don't just assume guilt just because you're accused of something doesn't mean that you are guilty of that something. But given the social and political climate right now, I thought that there was no chance that FP would be back doing Nats games on Mazin off him being accused. I was very surprised when he was brought back in July and could not get over the timing of this. Again, the same day on which the Starling Castro scandal broke, FP was back on Mazin. And I'm not shocked, that we on Wednesday got the news that FP is in fact out. My sense of what happened here is that the Nats wanted FP out in May, were unable to get him out because the investigation ended up being inconclusive, and then the Nats just chose to part ways with FP this week. Understand, uh, the broadcasters for Nats games are selected by the Nats and not Masson. Uh, that's standard across MLB. I'm sure that Masson has some input, but who broadcasts Nats games is ultimately up to the Nats. And so now what for Masson Telecast? Well, we do know that Bob Carpenter is coming back because also on Wednesday were multiple reports that Bob will be back as the play-by-play announcer for Masson's telecast of Nationals games for the next two seasons, 2022 and 2023. Uh, Bob really has become an institution if you're a Nats fan. Bob became the play-by-play announcer for Masson's telecast of Nats games beginning with the 2006 season, so the second season for the Nats in Washington, D.C. Bob has been doing Nats games for a while now. Uh, Mel Proctor, as you may remember, was the play-by-play announcer for Masson's telecast of Nats games for the team's first season in Washington, D.C., 2005. Mel Proctor and Ron Darling was your initial broadcasting duo on television for the Nationals in D.C. I was a big Mel Proctor fan as a kid. Used to watch him all the time on home team sports doing Orioles and Bullets games. Uh, FP, believe it or not, was the color commentator for mass and telecasts of Nationals games for 11 seasons. Yeah, FP was around longer than you may think. He started in 2011. He stopped what had been a revolving door of Nats color commentators for Masson. We had, like I said, Ron Darling in 2005, Tom Pachorik in 2006, if you remember Tom Pachorek, uh, Don Sutton in 2007 and 2008, and Rob Dibble in 2009 and 2010. So I've talked about F.P. before. He, to me, does know baseball. He does know the sport. He makes good points about the X's and those of the game, and I give him a lot of credit for that. I mean, you learn things about baseball listening to F.P. Santangelo. My two problems with F.P., Have been his over the top Homerism, which to me came off as inauthentic, and his old school thinking on baseball. So, with the over the top Homerism, like how and why would he care so deeply about the Washington Nationals? And he used to always try to come off like he cared so much about the Nats and rooted so hard for the Nats. I mean, FB Santangelo played for the Montreal Expos for four seasons, 1995 through 1998. Okay. I mean, the Expos did become the Nats, that's true, but he played for the Expos in Montreal in the 1990s. Like, what is his connection exactly to D.C. baseball? Why would he care so much about the Nationals? It just, it always felt like someone who was trying to compensate for having no real connection to D.C. baseball. Uh, I've told this story, but FP once got in the face of someone covering the Nationals for MassInSports.com Because that person, in FP's opinion, had been too critical. And by the way, that person was not Mark Zuckerman, just to be clear. But where the heck did FP get off doing that? You know what I mean? Like, dude, you're not a player, okay? Relax. And by the way, it's not a reporter's job to be rah-rah and a homer like you were, okay? The other thing, though, was FP's old school thinking. And look, FP's certainly not alone in this. And yes, this is all subjective. And yes, I am very biased toward analytics. I get that. But FP constantly, and I mean constantly, talked up the importance of things like pitcher wins and batting averages and talked down things like shifts and launch angle. And it just got old, you know, and to me it sounded antiquated. The game has changed, okay, and if you don't get with the changes, then you're not accurately conveying to viewers what's really happening. Talking like it's still 1990 does the viewers a disservice. And I thought that that happened too much. So who's next? Hard to say. Um, I mean, the names that have been out there have been many. And one of the nice things now is that the Nationals have been around long enough in D.C. to where you have former players, you have retired players who played for the Nats and now do have some connection to the Nats. You know, it was tricky, right? Because the Nats just got here in 2005, So you didn't have ex-Nationals players who you could have serve as in-game analysts, you know? So it's like you had to go to an F.P. Santangelo or to a Ray Knight, you know, people like that, because you didn't have former Nationals players to go to. The Nats had just come here for the 2005 season. Um, The names that most strike me as appealing are these three, Sean Doolittle, Gio Gonzalez, and Ryan Zimmerman. I have no idea if any of those guys would have interest in being the in game analyst for Nats Games on Madison. Uh, In the cases of Doolittle and Zimmerman, we don't know if those guys are even retiring, but I think that those guys could be really good. They would all have credibility, especially in the case of Ryan Zimmerman. You could have a Jim Palmer thing going on where he's so revered by the fan base, he can get away with saying just about anything. One of the reasons I love Jim Palmer on Madison's telecast of Orioles games, is that he doesn't care, okay? He doesn't have to do this phony, over-the-top Homer act because while, yes, he's certainly rooting for the Orioles, he has no problem criticizing a player. He has criticized many players over the years, and he knows that he's bulletproof. He's Jim Palmer. And while Ryan Zimmerman isn't Jim Palmer, like Ryan Zimmerman isn't going to make the Baseball Hall of Fame like Jim Palmer did, Ryan Zimmerman is an all-time great for the Nationals. And so I think a guy like Ryan Zimmerman could get away with being honest and get away with being critical. Now, would he be critical? I don't know. Okay, he's obviously friends with a lot of the current players. But as time would go on, I think Ryan could really grow into the role and be really good at the role. Again, I have no idea if he wants to do it. I think Gio is interesting, too. So Gio, of course, is retired he is back living in the area. He lives in or near Bethesda, I believe. And Gio, in a brief appearance in the and booth this past Nats season, was excellent. Now, this is only like a one-time thing, okay? And anyone can be great for like five minutes. I understand that. Trust me, working in the world of sports talk, anybody can be good for five minutes. The test is, can you do it day in, day out? But Gio in this guest spot was funny. He was engaging. He was energetic. Uh, Gio came off like a guy who could be good as an in-game analyst. Now, does he want to do it? I don't know. You know, Gio's not as revered, certainly, as Ryan Zimmerman. But Geo made a lot of money in his career. So I could see Gio kind of being like, I'm going to say what I think. And if people don't like it, if the Nats don't like it and I have to go do something else, that's fine, too. I'm set financially for the rest of my life. But, you know, it matters a lot who a baseball team's announcers are. You have 162 games per team per regular season. Your broadcasters matter. They're with the fans on a day-in, day-out basis. And the Nats now are looking for a new broadcaster for whatever reason. All right, that will do it for you and me for now. Keep the feedback coming. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at Yahoo.com. Monday show, episode 182, will feature something good for you regarding the Washington football team. Even though this is the team's bye-week, I will have some quality, high-level WFT conversation for you. I'll review college football week ten for Maryland, Virginia Tech. And Navy with the Terrapins hosting Penn State on Saturday afternoon. The Hokies at Boston College on Friday night. And the Midshipmen at Notre Dame on Saturday afternoon. We'll have a lot to get into with the Wizards. Two games for them this weekend. Home to the Memphis Grizzlies Friday night at 7. And home to the Milwaukee Bucks Sunday evening at At 6, we continue to deal with a bunch of injuries for the Wiz. The 109-100 loss to the Toronto Raptors at Capital One Arena on Wednesday night. Wiz lost Kyle Kuzma to a right forearm contusion, were without Dobby Spurton's due to a left ankle sprain, and remained without Rui Hachimura and Thomas Bryan, both of whom... Have yet to play this season. It's a minor miracle that the Wizards are five and three on the season. And I'll give you some thoughts on the Capitals. They'll host the Philadelphia Flyers Saturday night at seven. Have a great weekend, and I'll talk to you on Monday.
3: We talk about all the time about breaking records and stuff like that. I personally want to go get the the Kaban sack record that the uh, the guys got back before. So yeah, we talk about it all the time.